All right, as we continue our study of Acts, you know, we need to finish up uh, chapter 2 of, of Acts. Get this move on over there. Here we go. Oh, go back here. Um, and so once again, the, as the outline of the book of Acts is, we are in the section of Acts where we are in the city of Jerusalem geographically. Uh, just a bit of a review, kind of touched on this last week, the idea of how, first of all, the apostles were baptized with the Holy Spirit as the Lord Jesus had promised them. Uh, you see the explanation of that, you know, the outpouring of the Spirit from God upon them is in accord with the prophecy of Joel found in chapter 2. And Peter explains that, okay, all of this is happening just as God planned, just as God has determined. And so we want to kind of pick up there, finish the chapter very quickly, and get into our next section. Uh, uh, and so uh, just very quickly, maybe a couple, a few questions from the uh, lesson two question sheets. Uh, and so, you know, why was it impossible that Jesus remained dead? Why was it impossible that Jesus stay dead? It was part of the plan, right. Yeah, because God foreknew and God foreordained and God predetermined. And so that's why it was just a moment. Um, who are the witnesses in verse 32? He says, we were all witnesses. Who are the we? The apostles. The apostles are witnesses, eyewitnesses of Jesus before he died and Jesus after his resurrection. And that is a powerful defense in regard to them being the messengers of Christ, messengers of the gospel of salvation. One more question from that question to question sheet. Uh, you know, where is Jesus now? At the right hand of God. Yes, he was dead. And according to God's plan, that happened just as God foreordained. But then God raised him up. And that likewise was God's plan. And he is exalted at the right hand of God right now. Then and now. He's still there. And so, you know, with, with that said, let us kind of talk a little bit now about some of, some of these prophecies now, this is kind of the defense. You know, Peter made the statement that, okay, this has happened. You know, you, he, he died according to God's plan, but then God raised it up. You know, and you look there in chapter 2, he says, because it was impossible for him to you know, be held in the power of death. And then he gives the reason is, is what God had said through his servants in the past. And so there's three prophecies you know, that are, are mentioned here in this defense of who Jesus is. You know, he, you know, the apostles with Peter at the lead is trying to convict hearts of who Jesus is so that they would respond favorably to the call of the kingdom, to the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the first reference is the one here in, in, in Psalm 16. Uh, where David, these are all Psalms of David, where David talks about how God's anointed one is not going to stay in Hades. You know, what is Hades? Huh? Yes, it's the place of the departed spirits, the place of death. It's the grave. The number of different expressions you can use to describe 
you know, when we die, the spirit leaves our body and it goes where God is determined. And it goes to a place called Hades. In Greek, what's the Hebrew word? Sheol. And so you're going to find, you know, depending if you're reading in your Old Testament or, or your New Testament, some of some versions, you know, you know, primarily King James, there's a few places where the term hell is used in place of Hades, and that is not the correct you know, translation. And so some of the newer, one, newer translations have corrected a little bit, you know, because hell, you know, the place of eternal torment is Gehenna. Uh, and and that's, that's not where God's anointed one went. But God's anointed one did go to Hades. He did go to Sheol. And he said, but the prophet says, but he's not going to stay there. He's not going to stay there because his body is not going to decay. And so this is a prophecy that God revealed through David. And roughly, if you give me a, a round you know, number, how many years before the time of Christ did David live and prophesy? About a thousand years. That's a nice, I like round numbers. Easy to count. Yeah, not an exact number there, but around a thousand years before Jesus came. This is what, so Peter's saying, Jesus could not stay in the grave because God said this. And so once again, he's talking to a Jewish audience who know the scriptures and many of them were looking for the Messiah to come. And so David prophesied this by God's direction. And he goes and David's remains are still here in Jerusalem. And he says, and we have seen Jesus raised. You know, the 12 apostles, you know, include, you know, and that's Matthias now. Matthias is in that number. He says, we have seen, we are witnesses of this resurrected anointed one of God. And he kind of builds the argument. He goes on then talking about how, okay, in Psalm 132, a descendant of David would sit on David's throne. And that's being drawn from another uh, prophecy, you know, that Nathan told David. The prophet Nathan told David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Give me a, a, just a brief description of what that prophecy is about. 2 Samuel 7 and that's where 132 is really connected to uh, 2 Samuel 7 when the prophet Nathan is speaking to David. Someone just tell me what that's about. If you want to look, you can. 12 through 16. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. What? Okay, yes. And so there would be someone who'd come from David's lineage. You know, so there's going to be a seed you know, of David, someone from that lineage, from that descend, descendant that's going to sit on a throne forever. And so God promised this to David you know, through the prophet Nathan. And then David writes here in Psalm 132, verse 1, this idea, he says, God has sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. And so you see the correlation between Psalm 132 and 2 Samuel 7. Another psalm that you can kind of connect with that is Psalm 89 as well. 
Psalm 89, verse 3 and 4 is another text to harmonize with. And so then the third, once again, here's the apostles with Peter speaking. He's building the argument, you know, just making it stronger and stronger and stronger to explain why, you know, it was God's plan, the anointed one, you know, you know, be put to death, but then God raised it up because he couldn't stay in the grave. And this is why. First of all, you've got, you know, Psalm 16, and then you've got Psalm 132, and then the third one is Psalm 110, you know, where it says, okay, God promised to seat David's Lord at his right hand. And so that phrase, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so you've got two lords being talked about there. The Lord said to my Lord, you know, sit until your enemies are made a footstool. And so, David, so here's God, Jehovah, promising David to seat someone, you know, you know, at the right hand of God. And so that, you know, that really correlates. Verse 34, 35 correlates particularly with what Peter says in verse 33. You know, he says, okay, he's in verse 32, he says, we are witnesses of the raised up Jesus. And then verse 33, therefore, because Jesus was raised up, therefore, having been exalted. And so he was dead, he was raised, and he was lifted and exalted. To God's right hand. He goes on to say, Having received the promise of the Father of the Spirit, and has poured this forth that you which you have seen and heard. And so Peter, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, you know, you see once in the Spirit is active in this whole story, you know, guiding the apostles in what to say uh, and how to say that. And he says, why, why did this happen? Well, because God also said this. And so you got three very powerful Old Testament references, you know, that is all getting to kind of the, the punch of the sermon when he says, verse 36, let everybody know now. He said, I've told you, know, you know what happened. You know, I've told you why it happened. I've given you the confirmation of why it happened. And he says, so therefore, let everybody know, the house of Israel, that God has taken this Jesus and he says, and he says he, God made him Lord, God made him Christ, this very man that you crucified. So that's kind of, he's leading up to the point to convict them of their state of alienation. And so the point is, you know, what, what does this all mean? You know, what does this mean to the, the hearer? You know, when you hear about these great deeds that God has done, and then, so you talk about the great, you know, you know, great deeds God's done in verse 11, you know, here are some of the things that God has done. He spoke this through the prophets of old. He fulfilled it, you know, it, 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 to its completion. And so what does this mean? You know, and what basically means is this crucified Jesus is no longer dead. That's the point. This crucified Jesus of Nazareth, this one who did all of these great things, the one who taught all of these wonderful lessons, you know, he's not dead. He's a living Lord. He is a living Christ. And so it is with that, you know, that, that point that he then really gets to the idea of convicting the hearts. And this is the objective of this sermon. 
You know, the prophet says, whosoever calls the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, and then he preaches Christ, confirms that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah. And he basically, you know, you know, points the finger saying, you are guilty of transgression. And why? It's all to the point so he could save some. And so those who were receptive, those who had, as Peter, excuse me, as Jesus talked about in the parable, good and honest hearts, you know, those kind of you know, people were convicted and they want, they want pardon. They now want to be saved. What can we do? We have actually killed the Messiah. You know, you know, you know, what can we do? And so by the Spirit, Peter tells them what they must do to be saved. What they must do. Really, this is an answer to how do we call on the name of the Lord. You know, Joel prophesied, Peter explains, this, the, we are in those days that now we must call on the name of the Lord to be saved. How can we do that when we killed him? Well, he's not dead anymore for one reason. He's alive, very much alive. Yeah. And it's through him that you can be saved. But Jesus says, you're going to have to call on that one that was once dead but now alive forevermore. And basically there's three things they had to do, at least in this context. Now this is not an all, all you know, encompassing answer to all the things that you know, our faith must manifest, but it doesn't begin in verse 38. It begins in verse 36, what they must do. Because the first thing they must do is they must know for certain who Jesus is. That's the first thing they needed to do. They need to know who Jesus is. And if they're not convinced of that, then verse 38, it's not going to do them any good. They have to be convicted first. And that's why he says, know for certain. And is that certainty of knowledge is from where our faith grows from. When we come to know who he is, we understand that and we're convicted of it. That's the beginning of believing in Jesus. But if, I'm not, if I don't know for certain, well, maybe he is, maybe he's not. Well, being baptized is not going to save you. You better know for certain that this Jesus is the Lord and that this Jesus is the Christ of God. And if you know that for certain, then, you know, then act on that. Act according to that conviction. And, there, and therefore, you, know, you have a number of people who truly are pierced in their heart, cut to the heart. And so they ask the question, what must we do? Yeah. So the people who are asking this question are the people who know for certain now. And so those who know for certain are being told, okay, this is what you need to do. If, you're gonna, if you know for certain, then you need to act on it. And what do you need to do? He says, well, you need to repent for one thing, and then you need to be baptized 
in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, why would you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? Well, because who is Jesus? He's the Lord. He's the Christ. That's why. That's why we must be baptized in his name, according to his authority, and because of who he is. He is God's son. He is God's servant. He is God's anointed one that was predetermined, foreknown, and then exalted to the right hand where he now reigns until all his enemies are made his footstool. Any any thoughts or questions? Uh, Bruce over here, Dale, please. Back to Joel 2 and verse 32 and 33, the calling of God. Here's the example of God mm-hmm. calling man to repent and man yeah. calling on God to remember his promise yes. through Jesus. Right. And I, I'm glad you, you, you brought that up, this idea there's, there's two sides to this call. You know, God is calling you know, through the means that he's provided you know, access for us all. But then there is, okay, he calls, but I have to call on him as well. And you do. Peter and the apostles in this simple foundational lesson you know, presents what God has done and is doing and what the believer, of course we've got to read to the point of belief, but what the believer then must do to call so that, and I like the way you said it, so that they will receive the promise. Take it. You know, that, that word do has become almost a, a dirty word in some religious circles today, as if it implies that we're saved by works. Mm-hmm. But in every case where New Testament people asked, what must we do, they were told what they had to do. Right. And here, Peter doesn't say, oh, there's nothing for you to do. Christ did it all. Mm-hmm. There was something for them to do. And I just throw that out as, as an argument. Right against the he did. the mm-hmm. saved by works yeah. or not saved by works argument. Yeah. And, and and with that line of thought, when you just just t- take this sermon and you you compare you compare what God has done and has been doing, you know, you know, from the beginning of time, and you can and you look at what ha- what uh, uh, Christ has done and is doing, and and you and so you see you see you know you see the work of the Godhead here at play. And then you put, okay, this is what the God had, has been doing and is doing, and this is what we're called to you know, do by faith. You know, you know, so you think about, okay, what God has done is so much greater. And so therefore, my works, you know, or my, let me say my obedience to, the, to God's call you know, is not you know, a work of my own righteousness. Yeah, so you say, it's just see the, the magnitude of what God's done versus what he's asked us to do to manifest faith. Uh, verse 38 is parallel to verse 21 and also explains it. Yes. The calling on the Lord and who the Lord is and, and how you do that. Right. Yeah. And I think, that you need to, I think we need to see that. When you see the, in, in this, you know, how every piece of the sermon fits together as a perfect puzzle. You know, and, and so these are not like you know, separate little points that have no connection, you know, but uh, it all is coming together as Peter, by the Spirit, is expounding this great you know, message 
of salvation and of hope. And you, and you think about this idea here of, of, of what, what is transpiring. And if particularly, you look, you look in verse 39, and it goes on, and it says, For the promise you know, is for you and your children and for all who are far off. And so this idea of salvation, this idea of, of the promise forgiveness, you know, yeah, yes, it was for that generation, of course, you know, the very ones that he is preaching, but it's for all subsequent generations to come. And so you think if, the, if, the, if this promise is for future generations, so are the requirements for future generations. And so if that generation had to know for certain upon hearing the, the message of truth and then respond with conviction to their knowledge by faith in obedience, if it was, it was true for them, then it's also true for us. And so these commandments or how a person goes back to what Gerald says, this is how we call on Jesus to be saved. Yeah, and you think about the, yeah, and you're not, the believer, the, the believer is not forgiven. Go back to just, you know, verse 36, know for certain who Jesus is. If you do, then okay, this is what you need to do. Well, that convicted believer is not forgiven until he acts upon the teaching of Jesus Christ. Very quickly, I want to just very briefly touch on the subject of the gift of the Holy Spirit here. You know, there are a number of different, you know, different ideas that, you, 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 that are taken on this. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time. I'm going to give you my, my understanding of, of what it is in this context. Grammatically, in this verse, there's no definitive way to determine if the gift is from the Spirit, or if the gift is the Spirit. Grammatically, there's no way. It can go either way grammatically, in English or in Greek. And so you can't, you know, you can't, you know, there's no way in a definitive way to say. And so you're going to have, and so there are different aspects, you know, or different ways people will understand what the gift of the Holy Spirit is here. You know, God the Father and God the Son and the God the Holy Spirit are very much part of redemption. All three of the Godhead are very much part of salvation and therefore are part of the lives of those who have been redeemed, those who have been saved. All three are involved in our salvation. I'm, I'm convinced in, in my reading of Acts 2, and so there, yeah, I, my, the way I understand it is I take the idea that the gift is from the Spirit. And let me very briefly give, uh, give, tell you why I take that, that line of thought. And that is not to say that elsewhere in the book of Acts does not also uh, address the subject of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I believe in the book of Acts it does. But in this context, in my judgment, I believe that the gift of the, of the, of the Holy Spirit here relates to the promise of salvation and to the promise of forgiveness, which is, is accessible to all generations. You go back to verse 21. He says, whoever can be, you know, whoever can be, you know, you know, whoever will call on the name of the Lord can be saved. You know? And so I believe the gift of the Holy Spirit relates. It is the Spirit that, uh, 
that revealed that to Joel. It is the spirit that is revealing that now to the multitude through the apostles. So I believe the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 relates to the promise of that salvation. And so therefore, through you know, forgiveness, through repentance, and baptism leads to salvation. And so salvation in the name of the Lord and from the Holy Spirit. Uh, yeah, so that's my conclusion. But later on in Acts, you were going to address the subject of the indwelling. So that's kind of that's my take of the of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, actually, we had one first over here, uh, uh, Tolly, and then then back to uh, Alan. As as Dan's walking there, there, but there are others who will reason and believe that it's not a gift from the Spirit, but rather uh, that it the Spirit is the gift. And so you're going to have two major you know, uh, interpretations here. Tali. I was just um, going to read John 7, 37 through 39, because uh-huh. I think that is kind of revealing a little bit. It's Jesus talking. He said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there was a receiving of the Spirit to those who would believe. Yes, there is. You know, and I and I say at that standpoint, I agree to, with with that idea that the, the the aspect of the indwelling of the Father and the Son and the Spirit as well is, is for the believer. You know, my 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 conclusion is I just, you know I just don't think Acts two thirty eight is addressing that. John John addresses that, and later on in Acts it will clearly be brought out of that. I think to, to underscore some things you're talking about, I think the Jews at that time had a pretty clear understanding what the gift of the Holy Spirit was from Ezekiel, from Isaiah, Jeremiah, that that was the restoration to mm-hmm. God. That, that when all the, Even Joel, if, we, if Peter had kept going in his quotation to 3.1, the, the scripture says, at that time I will restore Judah and Jerusalem. So when you see all these miracles, you know the restoration is taking place. So I tend to agree with you. I think the gift of the Spirit is that restoration back to God. I mean, Peter even says Jesus received the promise of the Spirit just previously. Um, And so that would be a little odd to think that he received the Spirit in a miraculous kind of way, but he was restored to the Father as well. So I agree. I think this, this gift of the Spirit that's available to everyone once we know for certain, repent, and are baptized as we are restored, we have restoration back to the Father with that new covenant. Thank you. Anyone else want to add a little bit to that? You know, we'll, we will build on the work of the Holy Spirit in, in, in our continued study. You know, that's the thing. You know, that's one of, the, one of the threads you need to see is the reality of the Spirit and the work that He, is, he was doing then and the work that He still does. And... Uh, and so, you know, kind of look for that, those threads and just see how, how involved, you know, the Spirit is in this great, you know, proclamation of the gospel of Christ and how he is part of the believer's lives. Jonathan. To further, further support what you're saying there um, in, your, in your explanation, don't miss what Alan just said quickly. He said a number of things, but one of those was that in verse 33, it shows that Jesus received the promise 
of the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. which was something, refers to something that was foretold about him in the scriptures. So the, 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 the Spirit in the scriptures promised something, and Jesus received it. That would seem to be parallel um, to verse 38, where there's something promised in the scriptures, in Joel, uh, among a number of other places, that was to them and could be received by them. Mm -hmm. um, and so to, to see that that, uh, I think, is parallel um, helps us understand what that might be. Thank you. All right, well, let's move on. Like I say, we're trying to move along in our study of Acts. And so basically, you know, this section ends with the fact that, okay, everybody who was convicted and received the message, you know, the whole idea, you see the idea of they heard the gospel, they received that you know, gospel, and as a result, they obeyed it. And they're going to receive the, the promises, you know. And, and like I say, and you see a number of things that is being touched there. And as a result, you know, the, the discipleship, the number of that discipleship is, is, has increased. And now they're devoting themselves to these new spiritual endeavors. And you've got a summation there of, of four things that they are now devoting themselves to because now they are in Christ. You know, now they have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit you know, in fellowship with them. They are in the light and no longer in the darkness. You know, they've been clinched. And so as a result of receiving you know, those promises and those promises becoming a reality to them by faith, now they are devoting their, their life to certain things. And so I'm going to kind of leave that and move on to chapter 3. You know, and as we see in chapter 2, actually we pick up at the end of chapter 2. Because you know, I, you know, in, in, in my judgment, I think chapter 2 is a, a shift. The end of chapter 2, let me say, say it that way. The end of chapter 2 in verse 43 is a shift to me. You know, where you've got all the way through maybe 42, you've got, okay, this is, this is what happened on the day of Pentecost. And, and, this is how, and this is how it impacted these receivers. And so, but then verse 43, you have a, gen, to me, a, a general description of, of the ongoing work of the apostles, the ongoing growth of Christians, and the ongoing growth of the church in Jerusalem. And so it talks about how the number is increasing day by day. You see that at the, at the very last verse, verse 47. We talked about the 3,000 earlier. You know, 3,000 obeyed the gospel on one day. But it didn't stop with that. And I think that's where you've got these last few verses to me is just like a, now a summation, a descriptive overview of the great things, the wonderful things that are happening in Jerusalem. And, on the, and of course, a couple points I just want to write. One is, it is the apostles still who are performing miracles. At this point, you know, you know, no one else is performing miracles. The emphasis is still on the apostles. Acts will bring that subject up again later on. But for right now, in Jerusalem, those who have received the outpouring, the immersion of the Holy Spirit, which was on the apostles, they are doing this great work you know, of, you know, of performing many wonders and many signs. How many do they do? We're not told. We're told actually very few. You know, 
And you're going to see chapter 3 is just one example of the many wonders and the many signs that they were doing. But it's the apostles that are doing that. The other major point is the fact that what's described here, because you've got this new church, you know, the first church of our Lord Jesus Christ you know, on earth as disciples of Christ, and it's there in Jerusalem. You know, it's, and so it's, it's an infant, in a sense. It's an infant congregation. And so in its infancy, there is this attitude, this atmosphere that was the predominant, prevalent you know, description. And that is, is this idea of you know, one-mindedness, togetherness, you know, and that's what's going on here. Now, how did that manifest itself? How did that unity you know, express itself? How did that one-mindedness, you know, how was that you know, communicated you know, to the community, to Jerusalem, and to each other? Well, you know, what we have here is a number of things that are talked about that I'm just going to very quickly list. One, they cared for one another's benevolent needs. So, so what's involved with unity among disciples of Christ? People who have submitted to the one who is Lord in Christ that God has made. The one who is you know, under the exalted one at the right name. How does it change their life? Well, first of all, you've got this idea of they cared for one another's benevolent needs. They were actively caring for each other. And that involved financial cost to themselves. The other thing is, we see they daily assembled, particularly at the temple. And so, they're, you know, so yes, they're caring for one another, you know, making sure everybody's taken care of, but also they're together in the sense that every day they're going you know, to, you know, to, to the temple. And, and that would very much kind of go back to the idea of devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the apostles' fellowship. A third point that you see in these last verses that describes the church, describes these new Christians, is that they, there's a sharing of meals with one another in each other's homes. And so not only are they caring for each other's you know, benevolent needs, but they, but they also, they're in each other's houses. They're spending time with each other. You know? uh, and so as a result, because of those, those things, there's this mutual joy. There is this mutual praising of God down in verse, you know, verse 47. And so, therefore, there is this favorability in the community. Is it going to stay that way? No. But at the very beginning, because of the work that the apostles are doing through teaching and through confirmation of the message they're teaching and converting souls, and these souls are truly you know, their, their allegiance is to the Lord. And it, it is, in a sense, turn their lives up, up, upside down. You know, it is a total conversion. And these are the things that's going on among them. It was an exciting time. You know, you're talking about spiritual adrenaline. That's what's being described here in these closing verses of chapter 2. And so these closing verses, is not, these things didn't just happen on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 obeyed the gospel on the day of Pentecost. You know, the outpouring of the Spirit upon the apostles, that happened on the day of Pentecost. But it didn't stop there. That was only the beginning. And it just blossomed. It just kept growing in that way. And so that is what really is an introduction 
to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is simply another example, a very specific example of what was going on. You're told every day, you know, the Lord's adding people to his number. You know, every day, people are, the brethren are, are coming together. You know, and they're coming together in, uh, in a spiritual way. They're coming together in a social way. All these things are going on. And so chapter 3 says, okay, now let me tell you, you know, something else, a very specific thing. And so it is, you have Peter and John. They heal this lame from birth, this lame from birth man at, at, the, at what is called the, the gate beautiful. It's the only place that this term beautiful gate is actually used in the New Testament. And if you do a little bit of research, you know, you're going to find something. It's, it was called this. It was an eastern side gate to the temple or the temple area, the temple grounds. It was called that because of the ornateness of, of it. And when the sun hit this gate because of what it's made of, you know, it, just, it just kind of was radiant. It just, it, and you, it just it had this idea of glory when the, hun, the sun said it. And so it is at this gate, Peter and John are going up to the temple. It says it, it was the, at the ninth hour of prayer, which that would relate to the, the Jewish custom. You know, now, what would suggest why are they going? Are they going there to pray or are they going there to do something else? Huh? Yeah, so they, would, they probably would have been praying, but is that the only thing they're going to do? Go back to Acts 2. What's, what, you know, Acts, th- Acts 3 is a specific example of what is introduced. And so you talk about this idea of devotion to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, this idea of one minus, togethers, daily going to the temple. You know, why would these babes in Christ be going to the temple? You know, well, it's because that's, that's where the apostles gathered together. And so, yes, it was the hour of prayer. And so they're, they're probably going to pray but it probably they're going there as an opportunity to teach, and that's exactly what happens. And so you know the story. Yeah, they come, they're approaching. Here's this, this this lame man, and he's there. He, he, you know, he's there uh, uh, every day. You know, and you think about you know, okay, was was this was this probably the very first time that John and Peter Peter saw this man? Probably not, because he was, he, we're told he was put there every day. And if the apostles are going daily you know, to the temple, they would have seen this guy before. So he's not the first time they've seen this guy. Was, was this lame man the only lame man in the city of Jerusalem? Probably not. You know, you know like I say, just, just kind of probabilities here. So what is the significance of choosing this Man, this particular lame man to heal, yeah, and one who was visible at the temple every day. What would be the significance of this? Why heal this guy, this particular lame man? Get people's attention. Yes. Right. Because Peter and John would not have seen this guy only as well. Because that's the point. When you have this lame man who's healed. And when they see him walking and leaping and, and, and praising God, you know, they're alongside with John, you know, John and Peter. 
People take notice and they're amazed and they're filled with wonder and they recognize, isn't this not the guy that we saw every day sitting at this gate begging for alms? So they knew the man. What's the significance of a man laying from birth? Yes, there's no question this is real. This guy had never learned to walk. Think about that. He had never walked in his life. And so you have this very unexpected gift of charity, a gift that this layman did not expect at all. And so when you think about it, the people take notice, they're filled with amazement, and they hurry, you know, they hurry to, to Peter and John. They want, they want an explanation of this. And so we're going to have to stop there. Time is out. But we'll pick up with you know, Peter and John at, at the, uh, the porch or the colonnade or the portico of Solomon, which was in the court, the Gentile court around the temple. You know, and it also was on the eastern side. It would have been a sufficient enough size place for a large crowd together. So we're going to pick up there where you've got the miracle that draws the crowd. And Peter is going to explain who did it and what that means to them. All right. So thank you very much for your comments and your attention. Appreciate you all very, very much. So go on and keep on reading ahead and, and, uh, and working on the, we'll just got to keep it flowing.